Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, it's good to be back with you after and back from the brink for me and <laughs> yeah. for you too. I mean, you, you, got to, you got together with Dan Meehan to record last week. Thank you so much, Dan, for taking my place. And I know that, Ben, even you weren't 100% and still are not 100%. Neither am I. But the show must go on, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, COVID hit us pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So forgive us, uh, dear listener, if we don't sound ourselves. We're still a little bit congested. But uh, we've got something to talk about here. And I'm excited to be back on the mic with you, Ben, to talk about the, the flood story and the Tower of Babel. You and I are, are linguists at heart. We're amateurs. We're lovers of languages, and mm. we have some things to say about that. And then there's the, the strange story of the nakedness of Noah. We're going to cover the nakedness of Noah, pun fully intended. <laughs> it should be fun. So let's start with the, with the flood. Yeah. So, uh, wow, you know, this is another one of those very well-discussed, hotly debated stories, maybe very, very close second to the Garden of Eden, right? So yeah. I think one of the first things that uh, that I really liked this time about looking over things, and it was one of those things that I, I knew before, but then I'd forgotten, was just the meaning of the name Noah, Noah, right? Yeah. There's different ways that you can sort of interpret it as comfort or rest. And I think rest is the one that stands out to me, especially in the context of what we've been talking about so far in these episodes about the Old Testament, because we've talked about the the seventh day, the Sabbath being the day of rest, that as a temple text, you have this time of dedication, and then God comes into his temple to take up his abode and rest. And that, that rest isn't this relaxation, but but rest is, you know, getting down to business, so to speak, right? And and fulfilling the purpose of the thing. And so this name Noah sort of evokes a return to that concept, right? To to the creation and then finally then the fulfillment of the purpose of the creation. And that's exactly what we see here in the flood. This is a return to all of the same themes that we've seen for the past five chapters of Genesis, all of these themes and structure exist in the story of Noah and then a little bit into the story of, of the Tower of Babel. They recur in these stories. So we have the first five chapters and then the second six chapters. And even though the content can differ starkly in, in, in some of the spots, Again, you, we get a lot of recurring themes, so we're going we're gonna to talk about some of those themes as they relate to creation, as they relate to these other stories about Noah and, and the Tower of Babel. So again, we're going to cover things on the flood. We're going to cover the stories about Noah, 
um, we're going to cover Tower of Babel stuff. One of the first things that stands out to me here, starting in Genesis chapter six, is the Lord speaking here with Noah. And and we don't get in, in the Genesis chapters until later on, we don't get anything that Noah says. In fact, Noah, Noah himself doesn't say hardly anything here. If we go to Moses 8, which is part of this reading, we get more of the words of Noah because this is sort of the Joseph Smith translation of this. But I'm going to go here to verse 6 of chapter 6. It says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So we do have the Joseph Smith translation of this over in Moses chapter 8 that I'll get to here in a second. But this this phrase here where it says it grieved him to his heart really reminded me of the discussion last week with the vision of Enoch. So Enoch has this vision, and in the vision, he sees all of the wickedness of humanity, and he sees God weeping because of this. And then Enoch, it says his heart swells wide as eternity. And then it says he has bitterness of soul and refuses to be comforted. So here we sort of have this this similar theme to what we we just saw in the vision of Enoch, that this grief of heart. Now in this verse in Genesis 6, it's the Lord that's the subject of this. He is sorry that he created humanity. But if we go over to Moses 8 in the Pearl of Great Price, it actually says something uh, a little different here. It says, it repented Noah, or in other words, Noah was sorry that the Lord had created mankind. And his heart was pained that the Lord had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at the heart, right? So this is a very this is similar to to what Enoch was experiencing when he he has that bitterness of soul. And it's uh, we talked about last week with Dan, you know, this is sort of Enoch's nihilistic moment and and probably Noah's nihilistic moment as well. he's He's seeing all of this this wickedness and what we're going to term disorder, right, in the world and thinking, you know, why does this even exist? If it's all just corruption and evil, then wouldn't it be better for it to just not to exist at all, right? And this is actually a lot of the rationalization that comes into the flood narrative and it gets ascribed to God. Now, what I like about the Enoch vision that we have is that there's a much larger and eternal picture that that is presented on the part of God in that. And and it's not one of nihilism where, you know, the purpose and creation of humanity was all you know, vain, and he just needs to wipe it all out. He sees it in a much broader context. But here in the Genesis narrative, what we have is all of these thoughts and ideas and purposes and rationale behind the the flood being ascribed to God. And this this poses a you know very difficult question for people reading the Bible from the perspective of you know wanting to to know a loving God right? Uh, A God who's full of grace. And then you see, well, he just wants to destroy all of humanity instead. So this is really the big question of the flood that's been debated. You know, why does God do this, right? Why why does the Bible say God does this? Yeah, some things really stand out and, you know, and listening to, to you talk about it in that way, and especially thinking about Enoch 
And so one question is, you know, did is it really God who's repenting of having created mankind and and not just mankind because animals feature prominently in the story too, right? All of God's creation does. Does he repent of his creation or is it really Noah? And it's interesting or and Enoch too, right? So when you said having started off with Noah as the comforter, right? That's the meaning of his name. And then you give me that Enoch is bereft of comfort. Then what I see that maybe Enoch doesn't see, right, is that God is sending Noah. Or, and, and really when I say sending Noah, he's choosing Noah, right? right. He's, he's, he's consecrating Noah. He's setting him apart and, and having a covenant, you know, making a cutting a covenant with Noah. And so that's what's coming. That's what maybe, you know, Enoch doesn't see. And so, and it's funny because maybe even Noah doesn't see that because if, if Noah is in the same place as Enoch, then the two of them look a lot like Jonah to me. Mm, yeah. Right? That you, you get that sense Resentful. of- Resentful. Yeah, yeah. So the question then is, two that you haven't really brought in that I think we should bring in, obviously, is, is, is there really this flood- that God causes and that he causes it to destroy all of his creation. And, and you know, it's, it's funny because when I asked that question, for me, the answer is no, Ben. But at the same time, the way I asked it, I could actually answer yes. Mm. So, yes, there is something like this, right? But what do we mean? Do we take this in a literal sense or is there a symbolism at play here? And what kind of symbolism are we dealing with? And I think, you know, in a word, it's baptism. Yeah. Right. And I don't mean necessarily that the whole earth has to be uh, underwater. And I know that that's an interpretation or an understanding of what is meant when we talk about the symbolism of baptism here. But that's not necessarily the case. Um, That's really taking something that's symbolic and looking at it literally, which is kind of ironic, right? Right. Whereas we could really go into the symbolism of it and understand that while there is an event, I mean, floods, floods happen, right? And, and, you know, the most conservative biblical commentators will say the fact that there are flood stories all over the world does not mean that they, that, that, you know, that, that the flood story comes first and then it's propagated. No, it's just that there are floods. Floods are something that happens and they happen in localities. I lived in Houston where they happen a lot because of hurricanes. They happen for different reasons in different places in the cradle of civilization between the Tigris and the Euphrates. They happen. The Nile flooded every year. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which things go from an ordered state into a disordered state and then they're reordered. And there's an important step that we're going to add to that process in our conversation but this is, you know, this is what I see here is this pattern whereby the storytellers, right, the, the, the authors of the scriptures, the prophets, they're revealing to us a meaning behind an event that is, again, it's etiology, right? An explanation of how things become to be from the creation where you get order out of chaos back into some kind of chaos again this extra step that I've hinted at that I want you to introduce, Ben, and then the the reordering, a return to the beginning again. You know, you raised the question when we were talking before, Chris, is often 
you know, somebody could bring up, well, if there wasn't this literal flood that, you know, not only enveloped the entire globe, but, you know, there wasn't this literal flood that God sent to destroy all life, even within a region, then why does it it say that there was, right? Yeah, why say that? Yeah, why yeah. say that? And I think you brought up the good point is that, well, there's there's an important symbolism to maintain here. And and first I want to say that I, I do think that the origin of this story and then so I'm not gonna say origin actually. The the symbolism of this story or the literalness of this story that then was used to, to take symbolism certainly finds its place in literal events, right? There were there were certainly floods. And then those floods are taken to then tell a story about something, right? We have to explain things, right? We have to explain yeah. why there's a flood. And especially, and when I say we, I'm, I'm thinking of the ancient authors, right? And for these ancient authors, if there's a flood, God did it. Yeah. If anything happened, God did it. Right. So what is God up to? We have to explain that somehow. Yeah. No, I think you brought up a key point, though, about geography, because we're apt, and, and even in the story, it does literally say this, we're apt to look at flood as simply something destructive, right? But if you live in ancient Egypt or ancient Mesopotamia, a flood isn't just something that, that destroys, it's also something that brings life, right? Because if the Nile doesn't flood, or if the Tigers and Euphrates don't flood, you have no arable land, right? Like you have your, your, you can't then grow your crops afterwards. This is a required part of the process in order for life to cycle and move forward. Yeah. And jumping to the end of the story, Ben, right before we have, you know, Noah naked and, and drunk, it's why is he drunk? Well, because he's been, he's a vintner. And he's been planting and he's been, this is what happens in the end. Yeah. We get the agriculture again. Right. Right. So, I mean, obviously there's, there's these literal events that occur in the lives of these people. And, and then they take these floods and you can teach things out of them. And one of the important concepts to teach out of these is, is that of an ordered system that becomes disordered and has to be reordered. But there's an important step between disorder and reorder that that the the concept or the symbolism or the the uh, mechanism of the flood symbolically performs and that is that of non-order. So you 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 have a system of order, let's say that in in this context the creation, right? that becomes disordered we have the fall and then and then that's sort of the the seed so to speak right and then you get the the violence that's talked about in these chapters that the everything's corrupt and violent this is the disorder that not just has creeped into the system but has completely taken over right and so you can't just take that and reorder it immediately you first have to go back to a state of non-order so like pre-order before before the creation and what was that well when we look at genesis 1 we this is where the theme recurs we have the spirit of god brooding upon the waters right so this is the water the primordial waters of of creation of of chaos or in this context not not 
not just chaos, but more specifically non-order, which is the step between disorder and order. And this is a necessary step that you have to go through in order to, for people in order, right? So that you can reach the next step of, of order, which is the recreation of everything in the same way and, and manner, so to speak, that it was done in the beginning. And so that's why you have coming out of the ark, which is symbolically the temple or the garden. Uh, it's symbolically the garden. The temple is symbolically the garden and symbolically the ark is as well. But these are all symbolically the garden. And so coming out of that, you have Noah and then all the animals. And then from them, they're, they're commanded to be fruitful and multiply, right? And so uh, going back to the concept of the flood being destructive you have all this death that's occurring. But because this is the story is being told in a symbolic way to teach that there has to be death, or in this sense, not a disordered, violent type of death, but a non-order, stillness type of death brought about by a flood, right, that just covers everything. Again, you know, it's difficult to get away from the idea that this is God just mass murdering everybody. But again, this is symbolically speaking about a process of death and rebirth, just like baptism, right? And so you can't get away from the concept of death when you're talking about this, but you don't have to insist on it being a, a violent God that's mass murdering everybody because the story is teaching the, the principle of the process. Well, not only that, but we don't have to insist on the death being the end of the story because that's not. Right. Right? Yeah. So, you know, you, you reminded me because the word that's used for the flood in the Bible, right, in Genesis 6 through 9, is really only used in one other place in the Bible, and it's in Psalms 29.10, where it says, Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. And when I read that, it reminded me of a verse I had read in the Quran earlier in the same day, I was reading a, a book called The Book of Certainty by Abu Bakr Sirajuddin or Martin Lings. And he has this his own translation, I believe, of, of Quran 11.7. And he it is who created the heavens and the earth in six days, and his throne was upon the water. So it really looks like here, like the flood is taking us back to that place where God's spirit hovers over the water if I can just talk about this in any order, you know, when when God remembers Noah upon the the waters in the ark, he sends the, the wind right. to take away the waters, right? So this word that's wind is ruach, which is the same spirit that hovers over the waters in Genesis 1. And just like in Genesis 1, the waters above and below are divided. The ones from above and the ones from below are divided you have that the flood occurs by these waters coming together again and that it dries up, not by the sun. And I think the author is really making a point of not mentioning the sun. So there's no sun God at play here, but by God who is the one who is in control of those waters, bringing them again, dividing them again, right? Back to the waters above and the waters below. One of the things we see potentially here in the way that the narrative is constructed and and the way that that God is held quote unquote responsible for everything that happens is just remembering that 
that ancient worldview and mindset is that God is responsible and the cause of everything. And we see it particularly in the the ancient polytheistic cultures. For instance, if you look at Greek culture, everything that happens naturally is the act or or caused by some god right there's a god of this or a god of that and it's all an action of a god that's causing that thing that we might call a natural process to happen and so everything is caused by god well when you translate that idea into the hebrew culture which is monotheistic then what you're going to do is condense all of those causes into the one God. So everything that happens, whether it's, you know, this flood or, or whatever else, is caused by God. And so you can see how these ancient myths and etiologies of these types of things, especially floods, where they get told and then adapted to different cultures, they come into the the Hebrew tradition and added into into their theological context, then they get put under the umbrella of their monotheistic idea. And so everything becomes caused by God, right? Yeah, or at least monolatrous. There's it, it was interesting when you noticed uh, and pointed out to me in our pre-show discussion, the verse that says, and it's I think it's in the context already of the tower story where they're building the tower up to the heavens, it says, and yet the gods, because it is given in the plural, have to come down. What what does it say? Yeah, they use a plural pronoun, let us go down. Let us go down, yeah. And this is not in Restoration Scripture, but in Genesis, right? Yeah, well, there's not a, there's not specifically a Joseph Smith translation that goes through the Tower of Babel story. Right. Unless you go to the brother of Jared, but that's a completely different perspective of the story. So we're not getting the same telling. Right. So we're talking about Genesis where we're getting mm-hmm. this. And, you know, one of the things that, that I did in in studying this week's reading is go back into some of the other ancient Mesopotamian and, well, just Near Eastern in general, right? The myths from Mesopotamia. There's a great book from... Oxford University Press called Myths from Mesopotamia that has the Gilgamesh, which is the oldest story that we have. You know, you have this flood story embedded in this mm-hmm. this bigger story that's that's a great, you know, hero's journey after an elixir of eternal life, but embedded in it is a flood story that looks a lot like the story in Genesis, right? And down to a lot of details. And in fact, there's also the the uh, Trahasis and others. And so there are these different versions of the flood story that I think are part of the context of the biblical authors. And so they're giving us those same stories from their perspective. And one thing they're doing, as you pointed out already, Ben, is they're taking these stories that are from gods other than the God of Israel and telling the same story, but now it's the God of Israel who's doing these things, right? Right. And the other thing they're doing is in leaving things out like the sun, for example, there's an intertextuality here. These texts are woven in a sense because they're part of the culture of the peoples among whom the ancient Israelites are living. Yeah, well, that's a glaring omission because the you know every yeah. culture at that time has a distinct sun god. Exactly. And so it's something that has to be intentional, right? And so it's showing us again that God 
is the one who has the power over the waters, which again, there is the Tiamat story. And, and that looks like the Leviathan story in the Bible that we haven't really gotten to. It's not part of this week's reading where God has to conquer this, this chaos creature to have control over the waters. But the point here is that he does have control over the waters. And so I see these texts in conversation with one another. It's interesting because I know the stories. Gilgamesh is one of my favorite stories. I read it two or three times every year. I like the Stephen Mitchell telling of it because being a poet's poet, he actually fills in the missing parts. You know, we don't have the whole story. We have all these different recensions, right, from from different times and different places. And yet he fills in the blank. I don't know if you've read that, Ben. It's it's a great story. Hmm. So so I see these texts in conversation with one another, and it's very much the case that they're part of the the context, and that at least for me, it looks like just like I see in the in the Quran where the biblical stories are taken for granted and they're sort of retold and repurposed for the purposes of the authors that we're dealing with. Right. In this case, our ancient uh, Israelite authors, you know, the the people uh, who think of Yahweh as the one being all the way down to, you know, the warrior with the bow, right, in the end. Right. Well, I think that that actually brings up an important point that we're going to make um, when we're ready to talk about the story of, of Noah's nakedness. And, and it's that some of the the stories there's especially that one of Noah's nakedness there's there's a lot of debate over like not just what they mean but like what the actual correct translation of things is supposed to be because there's so much ambiguity in the actual writing of the story of the narrative and so what that tells us is that you know if we're borrowing all of these myths in order to tell something what we're supposed to be pointing at isn't the mechanics of the story, but rather, why are they telling the story that way? Why are they using these elements to tell the story? And so that's what we're trying to get at is, is that underneath, not just the moral meaning, but what is it that we can take from this that actually teaches us or points us toward God? And it's not the mechanics or the the concept that everything just was slaughtered in the flood, but it is the idea that you have to have death before you have life, right? You have to have non-order before you have the order. And this actually, if we pull in like a cruciform hermeneutic on this, I mean, this actually maps well to the passion of Christ because you you have all of the violence that surrounds him that pushes him to the cross, but then you have the moment at the cross where it's of his surrender, of his saying, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Christ says, no man can take my life from me, you know, but I, I give it freely. So that's actually the point of, of non-order there because it's the point of, of surrender, of stillness, of, of peaceful. And that is the prelude to the resurrection, to the actual recreation of everything in its proper order again. You know, Ben, that reminds me, the, the Quran makes it a point to point out that that the Jews did not crucify Christ and they did not they did not kill him and they not, did not crucify him is what the Quran tells us then and the the interpretation you know that's prevalent among Muslims today is that Jesus therefore was not killed mm. and was not crucified yeah he didn't die yeah but that's not how it was read mm. by earlier Muslims right because the text what it's saying is the Jews were bragging that they had killed and crucified mm. Jesus and the text says they did not 
And the they is, it's really clear that the they means the Jews because it's in the previous sentence. The referent is clear, right? Mm. And so what it's saying is, but it, but it was made to appear so to them. So they think it seems to them that they're doing this. But as you pointed out, Jesus says, no one can take his life. He gives it freely. And as we've said earlier, it's not, you know, the Jews who are doing things. It's God who is doing things, mm. right? So God is acting. You could even say the Romans did it, not the Jews. I don't know. You know, there are different ways sure. that that verse has been read. Sure. It's, the church just came out with a pamphlet on, on Islam. Uh, and this, the verse is given, you know, in the interpretation that it has among Muslims today, but it was not always the case that it was interpreted that way. And so it actually says what you're well, saying. Well, I mean, I think that's a good example of this idea that you can actually explain the quote unquote death of Jesus in at least those three different ways, right? Oh, well, the Jews killed him. Well, from a certain point of view, well, the Romans killed him. Well, from a certain point of view, well, he just, he gave his life freely. Well, from a certain point of view, right? I mean, I don't want to get Obi-Wan Kenobi on this, but <laughs> there's different ways of, of viewing it and, and looking at it depending on what you're looking for. Yeah. And, and I think the same uh, is true of this flood story. Yeah. And so, you know, I think maybe this is a good segue to introduce levels of interpretation. Yeah. There's a letter that's purportedly from Dante Alighieri, the author of the Divine Comedy, to Can Grande de la Scala, which is just the coolest name, the big dog of the step. <laughs> yes. the, the big dog of the ladder, the big dog of the steps. It could be like either uh, stairs or yeah. ladder, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. The big dog of the step, you know. So in this letter, whether Dante wrote it or not, is not important. The important thing is that it gives four levels of interpretation. And the idea is that Dante is saying that he wrote these levels of interpretation, of possible interpretation into his poem. Whether or not he did, whether or not he wrote the letter, we can read his poem and the scriptures in those four different ways. One, literally. And this is usually the way that the scriptures are read, certainly by evangelicals, very much uh, the case by Latter-day Saints. It's mostly what's done in Sunday school. And the, another level of interpretation that's closely tied to that one uh, to skip one would be the third level, which is the moral. And so the moral is referring back to the the historical or the literal and finding that lesson, right? That that moral of the story. But there are two other ways that we can read them. One is allegorical, where things symbolize other things. And we spent a lot of time, uh, you and I, Ben, talking about the symbolic meaning of the scriptures mm -hmm. and Riley and I do too, of course, in Latter-day contemplation. And then hopefully there's the highest level of all that we're touching on, hopefully in this podcast, hopefully in our sister podcast in Latter-day contemplation, which is the anagogical level. So I think it's worth bringing this up because we are dealing with these texts a lot in this, on this podcast at the level of allegory, right? At the level sure, of symbolism sure, and hopefully touching on the anagogical level too. I think that, you know, dealing with it at a symbolic level is one way that helps move you in the direction of the anagogical. Yes. And one of the ways you can do that is, is looking at things psychologically. And so actually, I think that this concept that we see in this story of order, disorder, a non-order and reorder, right, is actually uh, pretty sound psychologically 
with how we move through, deal with trauma or, or whatever, you know, type of situation in our lives. This actually maps well beatitudinally, right, with beatitudes. This step of non-order, it really was sort of a, a, a light that came on when I was reading and watching some stuff by, this is, by the way, from John Walton. This is where I got the idea from. Maybe he got it from somewhere else. I don't know. But it, it really opens up that, that space there to segue from a disordered state to a, a reordered state, also in an alchemical way, that when, when I look at it and, and how I am to, you know, maybe just a repentance process, right? How I'm supposed to move forward with something, the, the moment of the non-order, the surrender, the letting go, the poverty of spirit we we got to move through that part in order to arrive at something that we might call holier, right? Yeah. I'll give you an example, Ben, you know, because this is a, a concept that's dealt with without the step that you're mentioning that, that you got from John Walton, right? You have Richard Rohr in his book, The Wisdom Pattern, which is dealing with this pattern of order, disorder, and then he says reorder without the the, the no order step. And he gives a number of examples. And so one of them is, and you can really see the missing step, right? One of them is from innocence, which is order, right? To addiction. Mm -hmm. So now you're an addict, whether you be an alcoholic, let's say alcoholic, right? You're an addict to then recovery, this reorder. But you don't go from addiction to recovery without going through the serenity prayer, yeah. right? Without going into that space of, they're just things that aren't in my control and I have to surrender yeah. and I have to give that up to God and I have to learn to distinguish between the things that are in my control and the things that aren't in my control. Very much a stoic way of thinking. And this is very much at the time of Jesus, the prevailing philosophy. And when I say philosophy, it's really a way of life at that time. So it's closer to what we think of as religion today. And so that's very much the idea at the time is the stoic idea of being able to distinguish between what's in our control and what's not and focusing on what is in our control. That's the stoic way. Here we're dealing with the beatitudinal way, again, making that distinction, but then turning to God, right? And, and really being able to turn that over to God, what is not under our control and leave that in his hands. And we still do what we, we still do. You know, I do me, right? I do what I, whatever it is in my control, is up to me, but the rest of it, I have to trust in God. Yeah. So we, we have the flood happens, right? And things start drying and Noah sends out the birds. We have some numerology going on here a little bit, right? We've got the seven days, the 40 days. We talk about Noah's age, which seems really symbolic and, and maybe numerological in, in a certain sense. Um, one of the things that that sort of stood out to me just to make this point was in Genesis chapter nine, verse 13, it says in the 600 first year, that is Noah's age, right? He's, he's at this point, 600 years old in the 600 first year on the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. So this is the very first day of his seventh hundred years of his life. Right. And so we've got a lot of symbolism wrapped up in these these numbers here. Right. Noah not only means rest or comfort, you know, symbolizing the Sabbath, but 
now the waters have actually dried up in his 700, the beginning of his 700 years, right? So I think the point I, I think I wanted to drive from, home from this is that I find it highly unlikely, you know, even if Noah did live to be 600 years old, that this is exactly when this happened, right? Obviously, they're making a point here. This is a poetic, rhetorical um, device here, making a point about who Noah is and his purpose, right? Yeah, there's so many things like this in, in this story, you know, backing up to the ark, the the word that's that we're given, you know, as ark, and ark comes from Latin, and it's from the uh, verb arcere, to enclose or keep off. So it's really just a covered receptacle. So that, but the but the word in the Hebrew that's given here in this story is the same word that's given in Moses. And so we have that these two prominent figures, both Noah and Moses, are placed into the same thing. We're calling it an ark here in Genesis, and we call it something else in the story of Moses. Like a basket. But the Hebrew word is yeah. the same. A basket, yeah. But the Hebrew word is the same in both places, and they're protected from the waters in this enclosed receptacle, right? Yeah. That's that's the same, made out of the same, even made out of the same thing, out of reeds. Uh, you can say reeds or ribs, and there's a relation also between the the word that's used for rib in Adam and the word that's used for uh, the rib and the ark. There's something to see there too, maybe. Oh, sure. There's so many things like this. Oh, there's yeah. so many details that stand out. Well, again, we talked about how the ark is symbolically the temple. There's a lot of stuff there. I mean, the ark has three levels symbolizing different levels. You know, even later with the Israelites and they have their um, tabernacle, there's the three, you know, the outer, the the inner, and then the innermost with the Holy of Holies. And so these these three different levels, it's all it's all part of the same symbolism of this being the temple or symbolically the garden right so yeah another thing that that stands out ben you know as we go through the story is that when we have that god is telling noah to build this ark he's telling him that the flood is coming so if we're saying that god is doing this horrible thing to to people you know i mean he has i mean obviously you know if you're not noah you're not in the ark right but again the idea that for Noah, he has already this solution before the problem, hmm. right? And it's the same pattern that we see that before Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, they're clothed. Before Cain is exiled, he has a mark placed on him to protect him. So whatever the problem is coming, the solution is given first. It, it's You just feel like, you know, God's got my back, right? Yeah. Uh, whatever's happening, he's got it covered. You know, this is all under his control in that way. So the ark lands on on a mountaintop, right? Again, we've got temple symbolism there or garden symbolism there being at the top of the mountain. They come out and the first thing that Noah does is he builds an altar. You brought up the point, Chris, that this is the first time in, in Genesis, in, in the Bible, that we have an altar being built. Now we we do have Cain and Abel obviously offering sacrifices, but um, it doesn't say anything about an, an altar specifically. In the Prolegrate Price, we have the story of Adam building an altar to make sacrifices. But here in the Bible, this is the first case of, of an altar being built. Later in the Bible, when we get to uh, Leviticus and 
and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we get these stipulations that altars be built out of stone. They're not to be made from from bricks or, or mortar or things like that. Altars are to be made out of stones. Oh, I know where you're going with this. And this actually, this theme comes up uh, a little bit when we, we turn over to this, uh, we get to the chapter about the Tower of Babel. And so it, it's yeah. a really interesting symbolism here. And although, you know, we don't see explicitly in this story that Noah built an altar out of stones, he obviously, in this context of this story, he wouldn't have been able to build it out of bricks. He just comes off the boat, right? And he gathers stones and builds an altar. But the idea is later that when you when you build a temple or you build an altar, that it's done out of stones, which are made by God. And every single one is is uniquely made by God, and you're, you're putting them together. Not like the bricklayers building the, the Tower of Babel. Yeah. yeah. When we get to the Tower of Babel, they don't build the tower out of rocks because you can't build a very tall superstructure out of just rocks that you pick up. It has to be bricks, something that is uniform. So the bricks are are made and baked and, and built uniform so that you can lay them layer on layer and everything is is identical and the same. Um, it's sort of a a mechanized process, if you will, right? It's a newer yeah. type of technology. It enables humanity to build taller and, and higher and, and better than before. This is sort of not to mention, you know, some of the Egyptian ways of building where they did hew stone, right? And, and were able to build very high. But we're talking about symbolism here, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, so but going back to Noah, though, he, he comes out of the ark, which we've already equated to the garden in the sense yeah. that if you're in the garden, you're in this place of of safety in the temple, if you will, versus, you know, as a place of salvation versus the outside. And yet, as soon as he leaves the garden space, the sacred space, the temple, the the ark, he builds an altar. This is the same thing that Adam and Eve do. Right. Uh, the, and, and they build it. It's outside. It's once they leave the garden. And if we look at the ancient temple, the place where the altar is, where the animal sacrifice is happening is outside. Right. So that it's not polluting the inside with, you know, the the ash and the smoke and all of that. And so it's interesting that he does that. And it's the first thing that he does. And this is a sacrifice of joy. There are different kinds of sacrifices that are made. You have these twice daily sacrifices. Here we're dealing with what the Genesis tells us is a Holocaust, right? Which is this complete burnt offering where it's a celebration, right? It's a voluntary offering of gratitude and joy is what it is. And so it's interesting too, by the way, thinking of some of these other ancient Near Eastern uh, myths around this, around the flood, that the Genesis narrative tells us that the smell of the of the burnt offering reached God, right? Yeah, I thought that was so interesting because if you take the Gilgamesh, for example, that's exactly what happens, and the gods have not eaten for the seven days that this flood is happening. <laughs> I can relate. I mean, I'll tell you, like when you, if you're hungry and somebody's barbecuing. <laughs> yeah. And, and the story actually tells us that they gathered around it like flies, right? Like flies, uh, greedy for this, you know, but that's not, it's interesting because the Genesis story tells us that the smell reached God, but that's it. It doesn't, he's not there hungry. Yeah. He's not gathering around like flies. You know, the gods aren't like flies. I just thought that was another interesting Again, a parallel on the one hand, on the other hand, a distinction that the Israelites are making between their God and the gods of those around them. Right. Well, their God is the is the self-existent one, right? He's, he's I am that I am. He doesn't 
doesn't need that. But but here in, he smells the pleasing odor. Well, the idea is that the smoke and or whatever that comes off ascends to heaven, and so it's symbolic of a a petition up up to on high. Right? You're always you're looking up to the garden to to pray, and so you're always looking up, or or you have the dome that's that's uh, covering the earth and on the other side of the dome are the heavens right is where where god is and so that's the idea is that things are going up yeah yeah and and not just up and not just in a petition but in this way that you know th- this is again gratitude joy in this way of one's prayers ascending on high and actually being i think you know the point is when we say that that god actually the smell reaches him that that expression actually reaches him yeah he so actually yes, hears the prayer yeah yeah it is exactly he hears the i like that he hears the prayer yeah yeah so then we have the sign this is what we would call the institution of this covenant between noah and god and noah's sign is the sacrifice and then we get god's sign is this bow in the sky and I guess I, I knew it before, but you know we always conceptualize this as a, as a rainbow, which I believe it is. But in in the the mindset here, it's the actual the actual symbolism is that of a bow, like a bow and arrow. It's of a weapon, and so God's weapon is put in the sky. And when you think about the way that a rainbow goes, it's pointed up it's pointed away from humanity so god's symbol or his token of the covenant is that his aggression or violence is actually turned away from humanity the opposite direction not towards humanity i hadn't quite picked up on that particular symbolism before uh, reading it this time yeah, you know, so you have very much the the ancient Israelites are very much they're calling Yahweh their warrior god. Mm-hmm. You know, he's for them, for their tribe, he's their their tribe's warrior god, right. just like everybody other tribe has a warrior god, and he has this symbolic weapon. And as and there's some other interesting symbols at play here potentially, right? So because you have the the bow and the quiver or the arrow and the quiver, right? The arrow being a masculine symbol and the 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 quiver being a feminine symbol. So there's something to that too, again, you know, between the sky and the earth uh-huh. and conjunction. You know, the, yeah. the, the conjunction of opposites, the mystery of opposites, yeah, of the conjunction of opposites. And you do have this, this symbol, this weapon. So you still have that God has this power, but as you've pointed out, it's not going to be a power that that God is going to use against man. And it's interesting because in the beginning of the story, we have that the reason that God causes the flood is because of man's uh, wickedness, right? In the end, that doesn't change. And there's almost, there's there's a reading of this as possible where, where it's God realizes, because it says that he makes this covenant and it's, how, how should we read it? Well, how about because of man's wickedness? So it's like he did it because of God's wickedness, but now he's not going to do it again because of, of, of man's wickedness. Did I say God's wickedness? I meant man's wickedness. So it didn't work. 
and and he repents and he learns from it or something like that. This is a possible reading. Well, I mean, I think that you definitely can can read it that way. I think what we might be able to pull out of it though, especially if we contrast the verses that we read about how it repented God that he had made man. And then we go over and we see, oh, you know, in Moses 8, it's actually Noah, the one that's upset about, you know, God making man, you know, it repented Noah. Um, he was sorry that God made man. What we're seeing here isn't an an evolution, an objective evolution of God's attitude or character, but an evolution of man's attitude and character and perception of who God is. And so like in a certain sense, you could say God is evolving, but what's evolving is our consciousness and awareness and perception of God, not the objective character of God. Right. The whole thing is told from a perspective of, a, of human experience. Mm -hmm. right? The whole story is told from the perspective of, of the humans who are telling the story according to their own experience. And so it sounds like we're, t we're dealing with who and what God is metaphysically. But what we're really dealing with is how we as humans perceive God and that perception changes and God comes into sharper focus and God is patient with us. You know, as Greg Boyd points out in, in Cross Vision, just because the ancient Near Eastern author thinks that God is a warrior God doesn't mean that God is a warrior God. And you can just see, I can just see God. I can, I can really, I have this experience. Like it's this visceral experience. Like I can, I'd, I've never thought of God that way necessarily. Although I may have been guilty of, you know, at some kind of jingoism in the past. Um, I've, I've moved beyond that as, as I've moved in, a, in that sense, you know, closer to Christ through, through, you know, through nonviolent imagination, I'm going to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really does take imagination. You, you know, we have to remember, Ben, you and I, we, we have come into this over time and it's something that it's, it's this, it's this process that evolves within you as you imagine a possibility and as you become open to it. I'll give you an example. You take something like the story of, of Laban being told, the text tells us, to kill, not Laban, Nephi being told to kill Laban as the text tells us, right? And you say, well, wait a minute, if, if would God really say that? And you know, you on the one hand, if you take the text at face value, well, that's what's going on. But if you explore the possibility, if you consider the possibility that something else may be going on, that that may not be as it appears, and you sit with it long enough, what happened for me was I ran into, I found articles that had been written where the story that, that's being told is one that's being told by Nephi in a pattern that puts him in very much in a place of being David in the David and mm -hmm. Goliath story, and that that justifies his kingship. And I mentioned this to my father, and he says, Nephi wasn't a king. And I thought, really? Have you not read the text? I mean, he's every king after Nephi is called Nephi, right? right? Because he is the king. And it's, it's actually very, so it's interesting that we don't really, we don't really see these things if we're not looking for them. And so again, there's this literal reading of the text that's possible. And then there's this allegorical level, and then there's something more, right? And, and be careful because if we take the literal reading and we couple it with the historical as we tend to do, 
then now we have a justification. Our moral of the story is it is better than one man should perish than that a whole nation should dwindle in unbelief, which, by the way, is what happens in the end. So that that didn't work, did it? If it was supposed to work that way, it didn't work that way. Yeah. Well, it it's also ironically what Caiaphas says about Jesus being killed. So take that for what it's worth, right? right? <laughs> yeah. So so the, I find these stories, and in some interpretations, you know, they're different LDS scholars, you know, out of RSC, Religious Studies Center, BYU, Maxwell Institute, whatever. And you get these, these interpretations that are possible where Nephi didn't even kill Laban or where whatever happened, he's telling a story about how it happened and why it happened in such a way that, that it really isn't whatever happened isn't the point. So it's like you were saying about, well, I don't know if we've gotten to this, but in, in pre-show we talked about going into uh, the the nakedness of Noah. Yeah, Schol- Scholars can't agree on what's actually going on there, right? So we, we, can, we can say, look, let's set that aside. And just like, you know, is there a flood? Well, yeah, there's a flood. Is there a universal flood? Probably not. There's There's really no evidence for it geologically speaking and there's evidence against it to boot but never mind that we can set it aside there are floods in fact they're a universal phenomenon if there's not a universal flood there are floods universally and so this is the things that happen so whatever happened happened but what's behind that again at this allegorical level and at the anagogical level that's where there's something for us that's where the text has meaning for me, regardless of what happened. Right. And, and of course, you know, there, there's also, there's still the moral interpretation. But again, if that moral interpretation is tied to a literal reading, which it usually is, that can be, that's not as solid ground, I think, as an, as an allegorical or certainly not an anagogical interpretation. Well, the point you bring up about some of the analysis saying, well, it, uh, potentially what's going on here is is Nephi recounting a story in a, in a structure and in a pattern to so that you know it legitimizes his position and authority, right? That actually is is very close to to what's kind of going on here with Noah, right? Because the way that the pattern of the story is told legitimizes him as the new Adam, exactly, right? And so now Noah is here and he's the head of the human race now. Right, not Adam necessarily anymore. It's it's Noah exactly, and so it, it solidifies him in that position. That's so. That's a very interesting perspective. That I I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms before. Is that this story is is now putting Noah at at the head, right? And so now the descendants of Noah are the ones that that have the authority, not just you know more specifically, rather than descendants of Adam. So. And they're the ones that are now going to be fruitful and multiplying. Right. And the whole story starts over again in some sense. So here uh, we kind of are coming to now the the story of Noah and his nakedness that's uncovered by Ham. And we, we've kind of already talked about this a couple times. The The story is just odd. You know, like it's just, we read it and we're like, I, <laughs> either there's something really, really bizarre going on here or... I just don't get it, right? Like, because what's the big deal <laughs> with a son seeing his father naked, right? And so there's lots of different discussion and interpretation about what is actually going on here. 
Yeah, can I give one possible interpretation? Sure. And I know we're going to set this aside, but this is why, right? We, we have to give a justification for why we set it aside. One possible interpretation is that seeing someone naked is really, can I call it a euphemism? It's a, it's a manner of speaking that says that, that somebody has gained carnal knowledge. Yeah. Right. And so, and, and it's not actually dealing with a homosexual act. We're dealing with the possibility that Ham had sex with his mother, something like that. Sure. And so this is, this is one of the possible interpretations. It's not necessarily the best interpretation, but it's possible. No, I mean, I think that brings up the point that it's like, okay, if this is like, quite frankly, a valid literal interpretation of the story, you have to step back and say, uh, what do I do with that? Right? Exactly. And then you say, well, there's actually several other valid literal interpretations of the story. Oh, thank goodness. On the one hand, on the other hand, yeah, now what? On the one hand. Sure. And so really what you say, okay, well, well, then, despite the the literalness of this, let's let's go beyond that because we aren't going to learn anything uh, objectively important from the literalness of the story. We come to that understanding once we delve into it, and we realize there's there's something broader here. We could learn a lesson. Maybe uh, maybe incest isn't a sure. good thing. Yeah. yeah, there's that, right? But is that really what this story is right. about? What can we take away from this, and how do we get access to that? Yeah. So, I mean, what we're talking about here, uh, at one level, we've got some recurring themes, and one of the themes we see here is that of nakedness. So this exists in the Garden of Eden, right? And so again, we're 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 recycling themes in this story that we had in the first five chapters of Genesis. And one of these themes is that of nakedness and the shame that goes along with it. And the covering. Yeah. And the covering that is then necessary. So, you know, God provides the, the skin, the coats of skins for Adam and Eve. The covering comes to Noah here. Again, another one of the extra textual interpretations of this is is not that Noah was literally naked, but that he was in his garments, right? And that this was a priesthood garment. And and so it wasn't about Ham actually seeing him naked. It was about Ham crossing a boundary he wasn't supposed to cross, being somewhere he wasn't supposed to be inappropriately, right? And this goes back to the garden narrative again, you know, Eve taking of the fruit when she wasn't supposed to do that, crossing that boundary, Right. And so what that happens is that that brings a curse. So Ham gets cursed and we can talk about why it's Canaan and not Ham in this story. But but that's what happens there. So, again, that recurring theme of this. Yeah, I don't you know, I don't I don't know what to do with uh, with the literal interpretation. And I'm not alone. You know, this is not something that that scholars uh, can agree on, you know, in, in looking at the text. But, the, but I do see the themes. I see in the whole story of Noah, not just in the flood story, all the way down to this strange story of Noah's nakedness, these themes that recur from the, from the garden, you know, from the creation and garden myths and from the fall. One analysis of this says, uh, I'm going to read from this. He says, although I admit that unequivocal evidence in reliable ancient sources confirming certain details in the account of Noah is likely to remain elusive, unmistakable illusions, that's illusions with an A, throughout the stories in Genesis and in other flood accounts from the ancient Near East 
make clear that we must regard these accounts as temple texts that have been written with a high degree of sophistication. What's your source for that, Ben? This is from an article that quotes uh, a lot of different things. This was written by, let me pull it up, make sure that I get the right name. So this is written by uh, Jeffrey Bradshaw, and he's talking about temple symbolism in the story of Noah. Um, and so he has several things to, to say about this. But I think the, the one of the really important points he makes is that, again, there's so much ambiguity about the literalness of this that where we find a lot more meat on the bone, so to speak, and where we can speak in in much more certain terms, if you will, right, is the allusions that are made to these recurring themes about temple symbolism um, or liturgical practices in, in ancient times. You know, when you say we can speak with more authority, it's interesting because if we go to the allegorical level, then it turns out that we may be dealing with things which literally or historically never were. But as Sallust put it, this is the Roman historian Sallust, when, he, when he's, ta- he's talking about myth, right? He's talking about when we say myth, we mean stories, right? We, we mean, it does not mean that they are, we've, this is something we've covered, right? That it doesn't mean that they're not true. But it may it may be that they're not historically. Accurate. It means that their truthfulness isn't reliant on their historicity. Exactly. Yeah, the scriptures are always true, and they're sometimes historically accurate. That's how yeah. I usually put it. But this is what Salas says. He says these things, meaning myth, never were, but always are, and that's how myth works. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the next chapter, chapter ten, is. Another one of these genealogical lists, talking about who begat who and all of their families and everything like that. And we're going to get to some more of these in later parts in the Bible. And so we'll, we'll, we'll discuss the function of those. But suffice it to say that they, they work as genealogies. They establish legitimacy of certain tribes and families claiming descendancy from, from this or that. They're also etiological in nature. So when you have the Israelites that have moved in to Palestine and they have all these other peoples around them, they have these stories that explain where all these peoples came from. Right. And they might be wildly inaccurate, but um, <laughs> that wasn't the point. The point was that they, they had a record that told the people who they were amongst all the other nations. You know, you have this nation that descended from this and this and this person and, and that. And then you could point to yourself and say, oh, well, we descended from this line. And that makes us, you know, the true believers, so to speak, right? Our, our, our God. So. Yeah, well, and there's an, there's something else I want to point out about this before we move on, and that's just that there's this pattern that we see where you actually get genealogy, narrative, genealogy, genealogy, narrative, genealogy, genealogy, narrative, genealogy. Mm. And that's what you yeah. see, right? Noah's sons, the sons of God, Noah's sons, Noah's sons, the flood, Noah's sons, the Shemites, the Tower of Babel, the Shemites. That, and I'd like to point to another source. I'd like to point listeners to another source. I just found out today, I, I, was, I heard from an old friend I haven't heard from in a while. He, he was busy writing a dissertation. And, and I know that means you're just not, an, you're just not available <laughs> yeah. as a friend. We, have, we, have, we lost Shiloh to the same uh, process, <laughs> right? 
Um, and so he reached out to me today, and this is Jabra Ganem. And, and Jabra Ganem works with the church as a translator. And he's actually making, he, I think he's either doing or has finished doing a translation of the Bible into Arabic so that uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can have its own LDS uh, edition of the, you know, with our cross notes, our, our cross references, footnotes that we have in our typical quad for Arab members. He's a Palestinian Arab Christian, always been a Christian, uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, working with the church. And he now has his own YouTube channel where he's actually going into his thoughts. Uh, what's it called? Do you remember the name of the channel? Oh, ben? goodness. Is it Jabra's Gospel Thoughts, I think? Gospel Thoughts. Jabra name. Yeah, Jabra's Gospel Thoughts. Yeah, it's Jabra's, yeah. Jabra's Gospel, Gospel Thoughts. That's J-A-B-R-A apostrophe S, Jabra's Gospel Thoughts. And he actually goes into the genealogy and the importance that that has. And he mentions, and, and this is the video he has on an introduction to Noah the Comforter. And, and I think it's the latest video that he put out. It looks like it came out a day ago. And I, I remember him mentioning that he's going to go into this more. So if you're interested in the genealogy, that's a good resource. Yeah. Is to, right. to look to Jabra. Yeah, I got on there today and, and watched some of them. It was, it's it's always great to get um, varying viewpoints and thoughts on, on things, you know, especially from people from different ex- life experience and cultures and stuff. So, Yeah, when, and when it comes to... Jabra's knowledge of, of languages and of the scriptures, we, we should be looking to him. You should be looking to him, <laughs> not to us, right? Yeah. yeah. We're by no means experts. So here we arrive at the story of the Tower of Babel, and we've we've already talked a little bit about this concept of bricks versus stone. Um, so there's Nibley actually talks a lot about this and says some, some interesting things about how Nimrod fits into this story. And we could we could go look at the Book of Ether in the Book of Mormon to sort of pull in some some other thoughts and 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 context here, but you know besides the concept of the bricks and the stone that we brought up already, uh, the other thing that stood out to me is is how this story contrasts with the story of Enoch and and building the city of Enoch or or Zion. So they say one to another here in, in chapter eleven. This is verse three. Come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Okay, so this contrasts very interestingly with Enoch and him building the city of Zion. So first off, they're building this tower with its top in the heavens, right? They are manufacturing. This is a man-made Eden. They got the mountain and then the the top in the heavens. So they're trying to to recreate this concept of Eden. But they're doing it in a man-made way, not with stone, right? With brick, with technology, right? So this is man approaching God or immortality through technology. And then here it says, we build ourselves a city, and let us make a name for ourselves. So this contrasts with the story of Enoch and Zion, where the people gather, and after Enoch is preaching and the people gather, the Lord comes to his people, not them going up to him, but the Lord comes to them. It says the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and then it says the Lord called his people Zion. 
right? So here the Lord is giving them a name. That's right. Right? But in this story, they say they're going to make a name for themselves. This is a, a very interesting contrast to what we get in the story of Enoch. We don't have the story of Enoch in Genesis, but again, we, we have this Tower of Babel that is this very like the antithesis of Zion in, in many ways, especially in the way that it's presented in the text. I love that. So, And then even uh, when they do reach heaven, you know, we, we get that God is taking them up, yeah. right? It's not that they're going to build the tower Correct. and get there on their own. Yeah. So Ben, you know, I know that uh, you know the Book of Mormon really well, and and I may even know the answer to this, but just in case I, in case I'm misremembering or, or or not remembering, help us understand, you know, for me and, and the listener, why what does the Book of Ether have to do with this story? The the context of the Book of Ether is that Jared and his brother are here among these people when all of this starts to go on and the people are are building this tower they're they're there among the civilization and what begins to happen is this confounding of the language and they see this going on and Jared asks his brother to go pray to the lord and say don't let this happen to us don't let our language be confounded instead let the lord lead us away into a land that you know he's preserved for us which is an interesting contrast to the narrative here because it says, let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Which is actually, that's actually the command, isn't it? To to multiply and replenish the whole earth. Yeah, yeah. So one of the readings that we can take here is that the people building the Tower of Babel, that they wanted to stay in this one place going against this is one of the many ways in which they go against uh, God's ways and go after their own sure. ways, right? They walk after the yeah. the caprices of their own hearts. To uh, to it, it occurs to me in that sort of Quranic language, right? Their, yeah. Their um, their own desires, the imaginations of their heart. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So so there's that, and there's another people, right? Who are actually they're actually they're scattered, right? And there's the people of of Jared, for example, who you're mentioning, they actually go somewhere else. Yeah. The idea is that the Jaredites, they're willing to go, right? They they just want yeah. the Lord to preserve their their understanding and their cohesion as as a family and as a people and their identity, right? And so they're they're willing to to be scattered, so to speak. And so uh, so that's sort of this this founding idea of the of the Jaredite nation that we get in the in the book of Ether. So what do we make of the 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 confusing of the language? You know, let's talk about this because you, Ben, you and I are among other things again amateur. Right? We're <laughs> amateur linguists, right? We're both lovers of languages. We're both polyglots, and we know some things about linguistics. Did you study linguistics? Yes, not like I didn't get, uh, I didn't major in linguistics specifically, but. My major and my minor were both in languages, and then I've studied languages right. besides that. And so, uh, yes, I studied linguistics, but you know, not like as a specific discipline in and of itself. Yeah, I started to to study linguistics, the discipline itself, and and I found that there was just a misunderstanding on my part, you know, because I had sort of a European idea of it, which was philological. Mm. And this, what I found uh, in my degree program at BYU, was more. You know, I wanted to talk languages. They wanted to talk about 
where your tongue is in your mouth when you make right. sounds. And that just wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't my bag. Um, I wanted to put my tongue there and make the sounds, but it's really, I was interested in the texts and the culture be, that behind the, the yeah. you know, that you find in the text from the people who wrote the text. And so I saw myself history in that, of language. Yeah. Yeah. And that more European philological idea of, of linguistics, but you know, there, there's something we can say here and that is, a reading of the text of the story of the Tower of Babel that says there was only one language until the Tower of Babel is contradicted by the Bible yeah. itself. Yeah. In the in just the previous chapter, it says that all these different people had had their different languages. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we make then of this? What what are some ways that we can read this more uh, correctly? Well, from a um, documentary hypothesis point of view, you could say, well, these are different authors that wrote these different things and and these stories were compiled and, and put together. And so it doesn't matter that they contradict because they had different authors that had different views of the world. But maybe a better way to go about this if, if we want to try to stay true to a consistency in the text is to say that it's not saying that there there was only one language, that there weren't multiple languages. What it's saying is that as far as the world goes, and remember, you know, world is always conceptualized within the context of civilizations that are within communication of one another, right? So in the ancient world, the, you know, Mediterranean and maybe even a, a subset of that was the world. They knew there was other stuff, but it wasn't part of their world, right? So when we say the world was all of, of one language, there was a there was a common tongue of commerce of interaction of the people, whatever that was. And so that might be what this is referring to, that we're talking about some sort of, I don't know what the term is for it. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but you know, like English sort of franca? performs that. Yeah, lingua franca, that's what it is. The English sort of performs that function right now. I always love the irony of saying that English has become the yeah, lingua yeah. franca <laughs> of our day because lingua franca literally means the French yeah. <laughs> language, and that's because the French language was the lingua franca. It was the it was the language of diplomacy. You know, when someone gets together, someone who's not an, a native French speaker or is a native speaker of who knows what language, and somebody from another uh, part of the world from with another language, they used French to talk to each other. Now it's English. It really has become English. Yeah. So one of the things that can be meant by this, and I've talked about this idea uh, many times and, and there's there's actually quite a bit of depth to this concept of confounding the language and we can talk about it at different levels but uh, but maybe one of the basic levels that we're talking about here is that the people no longer no longer invested in understanding each other's culture and customs and mindset uh, such that they could communicate in an effective peaceful way. Right. What ended up happening was that people just because of their pride, because of their maybe cultural superiority, they they ended up having not just miscommunications, but but contention between them because of this refusal to come to a commonplace linguistically. Boy, that sounds really familiar doesn't it? <laughs> so you're saying that the Tower of Babel is an early version of Facebook? Is that something like that? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. All speaking the same language, but we can't understand anything that we're saying, you know, that the other person is saying because we're not listening. 
There's wisdom in this. Right. We're not we're not really listening to what other people have yeah. to say. We're just making assumptions about what they're saying based on our, our prejudices that we get out of some maybe hot button words they say or a way they dress or some political opinion that they espouse. And so we automatically think we know what they mean without actually listening. This is a way in which our language is confounded, right? It's made ineffectual. It's made useless because we're not using yes. it in a way to actually communicate. What we're using it to do is to beat each other over the head. This is what uh, in landmark education is called already always listening. Mm. So listen, Ben, before you tell me what you want to tell me, I just want to, I want you to know that I already know what you're going to say. <laughs> okay, you see? So, I, so now go ahead and tell me what you wanted to tell me. It's something like right. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's interesting because when we, when we think about this concept, because what I see here, if you take this text and you think, oh, there was this one language and the Adamic language. And, and again, this is something we covered when we talked about what it means. There was a definition of priesthood that we found in the text, right? And and two weeks ago when you and I recorded last where it really is. And it is, by the way, I don't think, I don't know that we said this at the time, but who's reading Who's learning to read and write in antiquity? Priests, right? This is a priestly right. activity. There, it didn't have any other function, really. You know, so. no, no, it really does. And so we found that priesthood is this teaching, and and who who gets to learn this? The children of the priest, right? The priest teaches his son, and you know, it's interesting because you have Adam and Eve teaching their children, and what we read, you know, two weeks ago, but usually this is talked about in terms of males, right? You have the priest who's a male teaching his son, who's another male who's good. But actually we see Adam and Eve as priest and priestess, just as we had seen them earlier, tending to the sacred space. And what, what was the verb in King James that they were uh, dress well, was and tending keep. the garden, right? Dressing and keeping the garden. That really is a, a keeping of the sacred order of a sacred space in this temple space, in this garden, uh, sacred space, right? That we call the 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 garden, which is this walled garden, this paradise, this temple, which contrasts with the Tower of Babel that they're building now, which is you know that, another interesting parallel. Exactly. There. Yeah, yeah. You're at the top of the cosmic mountain, where you are actually reaching God, not trying to actually build one. You can't build a mountain, you know. And and, and it's interesting because on the one hand, it, it looks like in the text that God is really taking seriously that these people are reaching for the heavens. On the other hand, let us go down. They have to go down, right? The gods have yeah. to go down. So it's really not that much of a threat, right? In that sense. And I'm not really clear what the threat is in the first place. But anyway, the point is, if we think that this is about some Adamic language, and that if you just had the Adamic language, that now everything would be clear. I just don't know. It's like this concept that people have that, you know, that certain things can't be translated. Have you heard this, Ben? You know, you and I, we've, we've both done translation. There's nothing that can't be translated. Yeah. There's some words that other languages have that we're missing. You know, there's this, we borrow from German. What is it? Schadenfreude, right? This, this, yeah, this idea that, that we gloat in the suffering of of other people. Arabic has a word for that. English doesn't. So we borrow the, we could have borrowed the Arabic. We borrowed the German, but the bottom line is, we can still talk about it. You know, I can read, I've read Cicero in the original Latin, and Cicero is an incredible writer. So he takes, he uses a word 
intentionally that has polyvalence, right? It has multiple meanings at the same time, and he actually intends all of them. So what do I do as a translator? I don't have a word in English that has all those meanings in one word, but I have footnotes, right? Right. I can, I can pick one and footnote the rest. So there's nothing that I can't translate. And so I love what you did with this because it's much more relevant and useful and realistic. And it's something that we're dealing with on social media. It's something that we're dealing with in our political process. In the pre, in pre-show discussion and coming to terms with this idea of, of order, disorder, no order, reorder, I, I brought up, it occurred to me to ask the question, you know, time was when you and I were politically active, mm. when uh, instead of talking about the word of God, we were talking about the word of the founding fathers or something like that, right? Sure. And I think we can say we stumped for Ron Paul. We would have at least voted for him, right? Yeah. And so was, there was always this question among people who who weren't, you know, who we wanted, we wanted, to, we wanted to convince, you know, to, to vote for Ron Paul, to give this libertarian idea a chance, right? The, the question was, how would that ever work? How could you go from this disorder to that order that you suppose, right? And it's because I think people couldn't see, and maybe it was a failure on our part, either to see or to communicate what we saw, that you actually had to take that step, which is the step of no order, right? That, well, okay. <laughs> when I put it that way, that's actually what they were afraid of, right? No, they're going to have anarchy, right? You can't have, you can't have anarchy. But, but I asked you the question, and, and you really did identify with the point that I was bringing out in that question. I'd love you to, for you to answer that question. Well, I, the more that I've thought about it since you said it before, the more I realized that that this the step between where you step into not order actually ends up coming back to yourself, right? Because you can't you can't impose an order on society until you first cleanse the inner vessel, right? So like mm -hmm. what ends up happening is you see this disorder and you want to impose an order on it, but the intermediary step is non-order and that has to happen within yourself first. And so as much as you want to arrive at that final step, you're never going to get there until you step back and non-order then reorder your disordered self, <laughs> right? And, and so that's where it came for me is like realizing that the gulf between the disorder and the order, that the bridge of that wasn't society, it was me. And so I had to come back to myself on that and realize that, that there, was, there was a lot more that had to happen first there. Well, that's, that's interesting that you put it that way, Ben, because as I said, the fear was anarchy and anarchy is something that was understood by the people who are afraid of it in these conversations, right? As what? Breaking windows and stealing sure, as stuff, disorder. Like that, right? The, the disorder, not yeah, exactly. Yeah. When, when anarchy, it really means not no rules, but no ruler. Mm -hmm. And so when there's no ruler, and RK means ruler, but it really means literally first. So you have a first among men. So you have someone who is somehow... Even though all men are created equal, they have someone who is. And so how does that work? Right. So the idea of anarchy is that there's no ruler, which doesn't mean no rules. And it doesn't mean no rule. It's self-rule. Yeah. And so that goes again back to what you're saying, back to the self, back to our own. And, and it reminds me, too, of Confucius and, and what he said in that if you want to have order in society, you have to have first order in your own soul in your own family, 
in your own neighborhood, in your own precinct. And, and so you can think again of uh, Hierocles circles from a Stoic point of view, right? That there are these circles of concern. And we, I think we tend in the political process and in political activism, we tend to go all the way out to the, the periphery, what's farthest away from us. And so we're really, we've lost the plot and we're missing the point which is, I'd say it this way, and it just makes me think of the song by Michael Jackson, but to start with the man in the mirror, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Let's go back to Confucius. So um, one of the other points about this Tower of Babel story is, is what we get in verse 9. It says, Therefore it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Which was, again, his intention, right? It sounds like a punishment, but this was actually the commandment, which was to replenish and multiply, uh, sorry, to multiply and replenish the whole earth, not to be in this one place Mm -hmm. where they wanted wanted to be. And this is an etiological uh, statement here, okay? So, like, again, you've got the writer of this story who... Is, is trying to explain the existence of all the different languages in the world, right? And so- Which we still haven't explained. Right, <laughs> but-, but when I, I don't mean you and I in the podcast. <laughs> I mean, this is not something that linguists have figured sure. out. We, we posit, you know, a proto-Indo-European where uh, at least, and that's, by the way, just for the Indo-European family of languages, mm-hmm. with, which if listeners don't know, for example, Persian- is closer to English than it is to Arabic, right. right? You and I studied Arabic. That's a Semitic language. Did you study Persian? Uh, no, I did not. A lot of my cohort in, in Arabic studies went on to study Persian. I went on to study philosophy, so I can really <laughs> do that. I wish I had. But Persian is closer to English than it is to, to Arabic. Arabic's in a whole other family with Hebrew. Yeah, and the origin of its of its vocabulary and gr- grammar and so forth. Yeah, it's it's definitely closer. I mean, they use the Arabic script, but there's just historical reasons for that. Linguistically, it's not as related. Exactly. So you have this these languages like Persian and English that are Indo-European. And what that means is that linguists posit this proto-Indo-European but we don't actually know that there's any such thing. It reminds me of the whole state of nature argument. Uh-huh. It's just completely artificial, right? In uh, in political theory, right? We don't know. We just don't know. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't know exactly the origin of language, just from from an academic scholarly point of view. But there's a lot of theories about it, and so you know, going to the scripture as as this this wasn't meant to be the the scientific explanation but this is the etiological explanation of the people right. saying okay well you know if we've got all these different languages you know people were together once there was something that happened where they were all confused again god is the cause of everything so god did this and so now we have all these different languages so yeah and and one thing we can say is you know we don't have history which isn't the past, by the way. This is an important distinction. Mm-hmm. The past is not accessible to us. History we can know. We can't know the past. History is a, a telling yeah. of not even the past, but a slice of the past, if you will. And so we don't have history until we have language and someone writes it down. And so there's no story. Right. Yeah, one of the things I say is, History isn't what happened. History is what people say about what happened. Yeah, it's not what they say happened. 
It's what they say about what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, you know, it's there has to be some kind of there's an intelligence that's pre-linguistic. I mean, surely you're getting from point A to point B. Maybe you're even using birds as Noah did for navigation, right? And I'm not saying that Noah didn't have language, but the point is long before there's language, there can be this kind of intelligence. It's kind of, you know, you're you're communicating, you're planting, you're hunting, you're gathering, oh, yeah. you're whatever, you know, all these things are happening. But until you actually have not just language, but written language, there's no story. And I remember in um, Hugh Nibley's article on the pre-Adamites, which for him, it was indisputable that they're pre-Adamites. And he's talking about hominids, right? Before there's what what we call in the Bible, ha-adam, right? The, the human. Not just homo sapiens, but homo religiosus. Yeah. You know, he's, Nibley talks about there's stuff going on on the stage, but there's no plot, right? There's no plot until someone writes something down. And that's where it starts. And so that's the story of Ha-Adam, right? The story of the human that we've been dealing with throughout these chapters of Genesis, which again, we're emphasizing uh, for for you, the listener, again, the idea that these are temple texts, that these are the stories that we tell ourselves about the order that is God's order, right? The the creation of of the cosmos, that order that's God's order that we're a part of. You know, these are to remind us of that and to bring us back to that. We return to the temple, not to learn about the creation, but to actually recreate the cosmos, to take ourselves out of the chaos of the world and put ourselves back into God's cosmos. Great. I think that's a great way to finish it off, Christopher. All right. Well, it's been a great conversation, Ben. I look forward to next week when we talk about the father of our religion the Jewish religion and the Muslim religion, Islam, Abraham, Father Abraham. That's also a, a, a big discussion too. So yeah, looking forward to it. Well, thank you for listening and Please, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, leave us a comment. How, how do you do that, Ben? I'm, I'm not really on social media. I know we have a YouTube channel. I, what I love about so YouTube, YouTube, you can leave comments. Yeah, and you can leave those by by actual episode, right? Yeah, and you and then Apple Podcasts. I think you can do it as well. No, that's not on. Uh, that's on the whole podcast, right? Uh, you can't really comment on an episode. So there's, oh, on individual episodes. Yeah, and then of course there you can you can get a conversation going when Lindsay posts the podcast to the uh-huh. group. What's the Facebook group? Yeah, called? the the Latter Day Peace Studies group. Right, and then we have, of course, if you're a member of the Latter Day Peace Studies group, which anyone can join, that you'll find notices of the the Come Follow Me Study Group uh, that that I host on Sunday mornings. You're welcome to join us for that too. Yeah, so that would be a good discussion a place where people could uh, share ideas or, or get additional ideas from others about you know their thoughts on on the readings so and remember uh, our sister podcast latter-day contemplation and our friend jabra what is it again jabra's gospel yes. thoughts and a special thank you once again to dan for filling in for me last week and as always to Lindsay for the work that she does behind the scenes. Can I say she's the face of Latter-day City Studies? Because she's actually faceless in in doing this, right? (laughs) The heart, that's it. The heart of Latter-day Peace Studies. And to especially also to Kyle uh, Swingle and Tom Vogel for editing the podcast. And and, and even to my son, Christian, for editing Latter-day Contemplation. Thank you all. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. 
And Shiloh, keep your head down. Read, read those books. Right. Okay. Well, until next time, for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thank you for listening.